Welcome to Your Personnel File, a podcast from U.S. Army Human Resources Command. Your Personnel File explores the programs, policies, and initiatives designed to serve you, the soldier, veteran, and family member. Now, let's join our host and find out what's inside Your Personnel File at HRC. Welcome to Your Personnel File. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Ali Scott, and today I have the privilege to bring to you our special edition to honor the 50th anniversary of the Vietnam conflict with our panel, Mr. Greg Gardner and Mr. Michael Mee of the Past Conflict and Repatriations Branch, the Casualty Mortuary Affairs Operations Division here at the Human Resources Command. Gentlemen, please begin with brief introductions. Uh, my name is Greg Gardner and I am the Branch Chief at Past Conflicts Repatriations Branch. Um, I am an old soldier, uh, retired after 28 years and uh, took this job. Um, uh, after I retired here from HRC and uh, the Army, and uh, so been doing it since 2010. Great. And I'm Michael Mee. I'm Chief of Identifications within PCRB, and uh, I'm retired Air Force, and most of my Air Force uh, positions and jobs had some element of mortuary affairs, and then I joined this program in 2009. Great. When I speak to both of you about PCRB, and its purpose. I hear passion come out in the things that you discuss with me. Could you, could you describe for me your passion and why you continued on in this field? I love history and so that was kind of the reason I initially took this job. Uh, I thought it would be very interesting uh, just from a historical standpoint from World War II, Korea, Vietnam. And uh, as I got into it and realized what we really did here, um, you know, it, it's it's amazing what we're able to do for the families and uh, provide uh, to them information, um, bring their loved ones home. Uh, it's, it, it, the mission grows on you over time. Um, and so I think my, my interest has changed a lot, but you know, I still enjoy the reason that I you know, started this, the historical uh, part of the whole mission. It's such a big piece of it is the history of it all. It is. Maybe, the, maybe being able to retell the end of a story or the end of a career, but you get to discuss what actually happened in yeah. conflicts that we don't, we don't know about or maybe there's not books on it. Yeah, families know very little. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the Army didn't tell them a lot back during the day. They basically said they're unaccounted for, they're missing. They kind of knew where they were at and, and the dates they went missing right. in many cases. But beyond that, not much else. So what they we bring have cell phones in their yeah. pockets back then. They weren't calling families from uh, name the country, yeah. yeah, to let them know what was going on. So uh, we bring a lot of that to the families. Although the, honestly, there's a lot we don't know and never will because there were no eyewitnesses to many of these losses. Mm -hmm. um, but that's to me, it's yeah, it's fascinating to be able to explain that to the families and bring that to them. Yeah, Mr. P. And like Greg, I love history. I've uh, been history buff my whole life and. Uh, Little did I realize when I walked into this position that uh, we're bringing history alive to these families. We're bringing these soldiers and, and airmen from World War II back to life mm -hmm. and uh, bringing their stories out. We bring pictures and photographs out of these service members. We give them awards at the meetings. And like Paul Harvey says, I love to use that analogy, I tell them the rest of the story because like Greg said, these families most of the time did not know the particulars of the loss and. Many families, some families brought, you know, kept them alive. A lot of families chose not to talk about it after a while. So, I mean, we bring, we bring these families back, we bring these soldiers back to life and such and uh, remember them and 
and uh, sharing their stories. It's really, it's, it's very honorable, very rewarding. Great. Well, thank you both. Um, it's, it fascinates me every time I hear about the work that you do and all the effort that it takes to, to complete the job. Um, let's get into our first question. Um, the Past Conflicts and Repatriation Branch has a unique mission. Would you describe that mission for us and how, you, how it's supported from HRC and the Greater Army? Well, the mission that we have actually starts with uh, Title X United States Code. Um, it is actually a mandated mission, specific, um, and so it's kind of unique in that respect to the other organizations in HRC. But um, that mission is not just Army, it's also Department of Defense mission is where it starts. Um, and uh, so each of the conflicts that we have, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, are each mandated conflicts. Uh, there in uh, United States Code. Um, our mission really is twofold. If you think about it simply, it's prior to identification and after identification. Prior to identification, we work with the families of the unknowns. Uh, we provide them updates on their cases and uh, provide them all the information, records that we have, uh, provide them awards, um, and anything else that they may not have received previously. Once we get an identification from the Armed Forces Medical Examiner, then we go ahead and go out and brief the families and then along with the casualty assistance centers, casualty assistance officers, we provide the mortuary uh, support to the family to get those soldiers uh, interred um, wherever the family decides to inter them. So that's really kind of our uh, mission in a nutshell. It's, it's pretty simple. It's, you know, supporting prior um, and then, uh, you know, afterwards, uh, once we get an identification, getting them buried. Okay, and you talked about the casualty assistance centers. So those handle cases that are current cases, like Correct. currently so serving, and then all the way back to former conflicts. Correct. Okay, okay, important point. One thing to remember is every one of our cases is killed in action, active duty killed in action. So whether it's a current, current death conflict or a past conflict, we all, these are all active duty soldiers and airmen. Okay. Um, how long has the PCRB's mission been funded and how has it grown over time? Well, the mission really started back in the 1970s uh, with Vietnam. It wasn't called PCRB at the time. It was still part of the Army Casualty Office, which at those days was called CMOC or Casualty Mortuary Affairs Operations Center. Mm -hmm. um, but after Vietnam, uh, there was a large effort uh, to uh, recover and identify, but also uh, the last known alive mission that was, uh, came from Vietnam, where there were a lot of POWs that, you know, again, trying to determine were they still alive, held in Vietnam, et cetera. That mission um, really became a recovery and identification mission as time moved on. Um, in the uh, 1970s, Korea became a uh, large part of the mission. Um, and we started actually working the Korean War cases. Um, and, you know, right now there's about 7,500 that are still unaccounted for from Korea. About 5,500 of those are Army cases. Um, but uh, the Department of Defense has identified about 649 of those Korean War cases uh, since the 1970s. Um, World War II, uh, there's still over 72,000 World War II cases that are unaccounted for. About 36,000 of those are Army cases. And Department of Defense has identified 
little over 1,450 cases since, uh, since this mission began. Um, so it really started in Vietnam, uh, but it progressed to Korea and then lastly in 2010 to World War II. So um, funding has obviously grown over time um, and uh, the amount of cases we've worked has grown over time. Um, and as World War II especially has progressed, that has given, um, you know, we went from uh, working probably about 200 cases per year back in 2010 when I started this job. We're now working over 1,500 cases a year, um, you know, today. So it's a major increase in what we do since right. that How time. How many folks do you have in your office? Um, so we're authorized 15 Department of the Army civilians that I have, and um, four of those work identification. Uh, the rest of them work uh, prior to identification. And then I also have 16 contractors uh, that help us gather DNA uh, from the families. Uh, without those contractors, we would obviously be dead in the water. We would not be able to do the, the, the level of mission that we're doing mm -hmm. right now. So. And they have to travel around the globe? So we, um, the contractors don't travel, no. Okay. But my DA civilians do. My folks that work what we call case management, which is prior to identification, those folks travel uh, generally about once a month. Uh, they go to what we call a family member update, which is a regional meeting that we hold in various cities around the United States. Um, we're doing one here in Dallas, Texas uh, in uh, this next weekend. Uh, we've got uh, about 400 family members that are attending and about 180 cases that we're gonna be working there. So um, very large event for us. And uh, we're gonna spend all day Saturday um, meeting with those families, updating them, briefing them on their cases, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. I'm sure it's incredibly important. It is. And <laughs> the families, again, they, you know, they, uh, they really enjoy these, uh, these uh, meetings with us, and that's how they get a lot of their information. Michael's folks travel a lot more. They, they're on the road constantly, um, and uh, we offer families when we do identifications either to travel to their location and brief them in person or do it virtually. Um, during COVID, obviously, we started doing a lot more virtual briefings, but um, that travel, when you look at the number of identifications we get, we're probably going TDY uh, somewhere between about 100 and 130 uh, days or uh, cases, which, you know, multiply that by likely a three-day trip. These guys are on the road a lot, so. Mm -hmm. So that interests me in, <coughs> we've talked funding and manning. But what about the, the schedule and the times that you've set aside to create this, this touch point or this interaction with families? Is that something that's, that was deliberately planned as, you know, we need to make sure we provide these routine updates? Or is that something that just kind of developed over time? It has definitely changed over time. Um, but the, de the Department of Defense, the de Defense POW MI Accounting Agency is the government agency that's responsible for, mm -hmm. for uh, the uh, the recovery and identification part of the mission. They also hold the outreach events. And so these are DOD events that we support, all the services support. Um, and we go to roughly four to seven of the family member updates. And then we have two government updates for one for the Korean War and one for the Vietnam War that we do okay. each year uh, in Washington, D.C. And then again, those families come to those events. Um, so those are pr pretty much pre-programmed, but the vast majority of our work is families calling us, emailing us, writing us, asking questions 
or asking for an update. And we do those all the time. Um, you know, we do a lot of virtual events with families where, you know, we'll get them on Zoom with a government employee, uh, 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 individual from DPAA that's researching the case with one of my folks and, you know, we'll give them a, an update uh, via Zoom for government or, you know, whatever else we have. Um, and that probably is the vast majority of our actual workload is just talking to families and providing them updates and getting them information. Can you make a distinction between recovery, identification, and repatriation? Three different things. So recovery is actually retrieving remains from any given location to include site excavations, digs, etc., even underwater scenarios where there might be ship in shallow waters and aircraft that crashed at sea. Mm -hmm. Repatriation is actually the returning of remains home from overseas. And so um, you know, typically our, all of our remains coming from overseas go into one or two laboratories that are operated by DPAA. Hick, one's at Hickam Air Force Base in, in Hawaii, the other one's at Omaha Air Force Base, I'm sorry, Offutt Air Force Base in o Omaha, Nebraska. Third uh, aspect you asked is identification, and that's actually putting a name with a set of remains based upon all the analysis at the DPA laboratories. So let me add one thing onto that. It's um, a lot of folks are very familiar with Dover Air Force Base and the mission they have with mm -hmm. essentially repatriation of remains there. Um, our cases do not go through Dover, and that's something that is unique to, to the past conflict cases. As Michael mentioned, those go through either Hawaii, where they'll ho hold a, a repatriation ceremony there at, uh, at uh, their uh, Hickam Air Force Base usually is where they'll hold it, or at Office, Offutt Air Force Base, Nebraska, when the remains are flown into there. So they definitely hold that ceremony there. Um, but yeah, our remains do not go through Dover, which is, yeah, which is different. Um, so what about um, next of kin for soldiers categorized as unaccounted for? Um, what kind of reactions do you see from families um, when their status changes? It's really interesting with our families. We have probably the full gamut of, of interest to uh, obsession, if you will, depending on the family. Uh, we have some families that uh, literally are on the phone with us weekly that, you know, are asking for information and, and they're just, they're, they want to be involved in the case. And we, other, we have other families that absolutely, honestly, don't want anything to do with it. And it's, a lot of times it's because um, an elderly family member is still alive and they just don't believe they can deal with it emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, plus we have folks who are just not interested. I mean, you know, again, we, we run the full gamut uh, of everything. The vast majority of our families are nieces and nephews and cousins, um, many who never knew the service member. And those individuals, while very interested for the most part and very willing to bury their loved one and take care of them and honor them, um, they, uh, again, they don't have that emotional connection that you would with an immediate family member. Um, but we do, and Michael's going to talk about some of those here in a minute, but we do have some family members that are very emotionally involved. Um, and, uh, you know, those are probably some of the more special cases that we have. Before we get into the special stories, is there anything else that, that you would like to let us know about your department that I haven't covered? I would like to add one thing in, because I probably didn't cover it very well, but there are many organizations that we work with. I mentioned the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. Mm -hmm. There is a counterpart to that organization in Korea. 
Um, and I'm going to say the name because the acronym would not tell you anything. It's called the Ministry of National Defense Agency for Killed in Action Recovery and Identification. It's in short, we call it MACRI, is the acronym. It's essentially the counterpart of the Defense POW MI Accounting Agency in Korea. And a lot of our Korean War remains that we're getting now that are field recoveries are actually done by the South Korean government, that MACRI organization. Um, in fact, one of the IDs I just briefed in California um, was a service member who was recovered from South Korea by MACRI uh, back in 2013. Uh, they returned his remains and they were finally able to identify him. So that organization, one of the few in the world that actually is doing that kind of work. South Korea is very much involved. Vietnam also provides a tremendous uh, amount of resources and actually is doing uh, recoveries on their own uh, for the U.S. government and turning remains over to us. Uh, a lot of times there'll be maybe a team member along with them uh, from DPAA, but they're doing a lot of great work there. Um, the uh, Armed Forces DNA Lab uh, at Dover Air Force Base where, you know, if any of us that have been in the military since 82, 83, you know, you've had your blood chit card where you pricked your finger and put it on the, the blood. Yep, same organization does our DNA. Um, we cannot actually use that DNA from your blood chit card. They're not allowed to by law, but um, we send out DNA swab kits to anybody to include service members that are, that are relatives, uh, eligible DNA donors for the family. Um, we also work with a lot of private partners. Uh, universities around the country um, are contracted for by DPAA to do recoveries. Um, and uh, there's also a lot of governments around the world that assist um, clearly uh, for DPAA to get in and do recoveries in a given country. Um, they have to have the permission, support of those countries and everything else. So that's, that's an mm -hmm. important part of the mission. So it is, it is a very, very complex uh, mission and there's a lot of partners uh, that are that are uh, involved in in getting this done. Mm -hmm. you, there's two things though. I don't I don't think we've talked about it. That I thought might be interesting. Um, you spoke about a large push uh, past 1970 to um, return remains of those killed in action. Do you remember? Can you speak on that? Do you remember that time? So. During the, the, the conflicts originally with World War II, um, there was a large effort uh, to, probably the largest in the world that's ever been done, to recover our dead from World War II. Uh, there were over 400,000 casualties in World War II. And we, when the war ended, there were still over 200,000 that had not been resolved mm -hmm. and, and accounted for. Um, the Army went all over the world, every country that we fought in in World War II, and tried to do those recoveries. Um, and they were able to identify and return the vast majority of those. But there were still, uh, you know, over 70,000 from World War II that mm -hmm. were not finished after the war. Korea had the same basic effort. We worked very hard in Korea to do identifications, but the problem there was North Korea was not available uh, or accessible. We have had teams in North Korea, and uh, we've... Uh, throughout the years um, have done recoveries in North Korea um, and made some progress. We've also had the North Koreans turn over remains to us. Mm -hmm. um, but access into North Korea and access into the demilitarized zone in, in Korea um, still prohibits us from getting a lot of the access to a lot of these remains. Uh, Vietnam has been actually the good news story because um, we've had a lot of success in Vietnam itself 
But Laos, Cambodia, uh, and some of those other countries where a lot of our MACV mm -hmm. SOG teams were lost at, a lot of the Air Force and Navy pilots were lost. Um, it's been slower, but recently progress has been made in those countries. Mm -hmm. I think, I think that's such an amazing point because when we approach Memorial Day or we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the conflict, um, do we really, do, do Americans really think about the whole of the, the data and the numbers and the, those who haven't come home yet? I mean, do we really memorialize and think about all that that includes? And so I think that was a great summary. Um, can we talk a little bit about if you think technology has made a difference um, in these recovery efforts? Technology definitely makes a difference because historically speaking, they would rely on dental analysis, uh, anthropo anthropology, skeletal remains, articulation of such remains, and identifying media such as dog tags, rings, watches, things that could identify a certain soldier with a set of remains. Nowadays, like Greg said, DNA is a very powerful tool since the 1980s. And so now they actually have different types of DNA mitochondrial DNA, Y, STR, and something called autosomal DNA. And uh, I've seen all kinds of likelihood ratios and math that we see in all these reports. But nowadays, uh, dental still remains a very powerful tool uh, as far as uh, comparing the recovered dental remains with the service member's dental records. Nowadays, they also do what's called chest x-ray comparison. So that's where they'll take They'll take the recovered vertebrae and clavicles, think shoulder blades, of the skeletal remains that are recovered. They do a computer matchup with the uh, x-rays that are in the service member's files, the chest x-rays. Because back in the day, they used to test for tuberculos tuberculosis. Okay. So they can do computer matching there, and that's a, that's a nice technique too. Well, the newer techniques is something called isotope analysis. So that's where they can actually extract isotopes, uh, food and uh, water, and, and things that are consumed by that by the individuals' remains that they have. And they can actually, if they have commingled remains, they can actually separate depending on whether or not they can actually determine if certain remains come from a certain part of the country or world. So the differentiate between Asian remains. Uh, African-American remains, et cetera, and all this. And they can t even, they can even uh, isolate the different parts of the country. So, for example, the waters and foods consumed by people in Texas are a lot different than consumed by persons up in New England, for example. Okay. So it's another technique. One of the things, add on to this, that's, that really has been important to this mission has been the ability of technology to get DNA out of these ancient remains, and these are considered ancient remains. Sure. Prior to 2017, any remains that were buried in U.S. national cemeteries had been treated um, and with various chemicals, generally to preserve the remains. Uh, World War II, Korea in particular, uh, they used hardening compounds uh, on the remains when they were uh, put in a casket. Uh, they also would sometimes soak them in vats of formaldehyde, again, to preserve the remains and, and take away any, you know, disease, infection, bugs, whatever. Um, the problem is all of those techniques tend to fuse the DNA to the bone, and they had a very hard time getting DNA out of those remains. So any of the disinterments that were done out of the, the uh, American Battle of Monuments Commission cemeteries mm -hmm. uh, in Europe and the Philippines, out of the Punch Bowl in Hawaii, or out of any other national cemeteries in the U.S., um, they had less than a 5% chance of getting DNA out of those remains. 
2017, they certified a process to uh, improve that, and now we're up to about 65% probability of getting DNA out of those treated remains. For Korea, that's, that's huge because most of the Korean unknowns are buried in the punch bowl, and so all those were treated. Um, and for World War II, we have over 8,000 remains in U.S. national cemeteries that are unknowns that we're disinterring and processing. We now have a good, per, good percentage chance of getting those remains identified. But in 2017, that didn't exist. Hmm. That leap in technology was huge for the department, and that's been one of the reasons that our identifications uh, have gone way up. That's fantastic. Okay, well, I want to get into some of the personal, uh, well, some of, the, some of your memorable cases. Let me say that. Um, so, gentlemen, if you'd like. I can give a few examples from my time. Like I said, I've been doing this since 2009, and I've met, been to all 50 states, met all kinds of folks, every, everything from small town USA to fancy country clubs and everything in between. Just, like I said, Korea War mother, Vietnam father, and all these people in between. Just, just fascinating. One of the things that came to highlight, uh, one of the cases I'll highlight is Captain Lawrence Dixon. He was a Tuskegee Airman from World War II with the U.S. Army Air Forces. He was a P-51 pilot. And because of engine trouble, he crashed over mountains in Austria. And as it turns out, uh, I got to brief his daughter in Orange, New Jersey. And a wonderful woman, legally blind, sitting down with her with a Washington Post reporter going through the, the, the information and such. I got to return his... Uh, ring that had his mother's initials, gave that to her. I also provided her part of his harmonica and a small cross, and that was really nice. And it, it, there was a burial in, uh, in March of 2019 in Arlington National Cemetery, and they had the four-man U.S. Air Force four-ship flyover missing man formation, so that was quite, quite interesting. Another one I mentioned was that Vietnam father. That was Sergeant First Class Billy D. Hill, and uh, that was interesting. He was a crewman lost in Vietnam on a, on a Huey uh, mission. And as it turns out, I briefed his father, who was Mr. Bill Hill, who lived right outside of Fort Hood, Texas. And uh, as it turns out, I met with him and some uh, nieces that were taking care of him. He was elderly, but he was, he was a sharp guy. And as it turns out, had a burial there at Central Texas State Veterans, or Central Texas State Veteran Cemetery, just outside of Fort Hood as well. This happened, and uh, he was buried. The son was buried in uh, December 15, and just before Christmas that same year, Mr. Hill passed away. Oh wow! So I'll never forget that case. And then another one that was highly memorable was Lieutenant Colonel Don C. Faith. He was uh, well known because uh, he was a leader of one that he was leader of. Uh, 31st Regimental Combat Team, which fought up at the Chosen Reservoir. When the senior leaders were killed, he took over and became known as Task Force Faith. And uh, Colonel Faith was actually killed in action on 2 December 50 there at the Chosen Reservoir. Um, like I said, he earned a Congressional Medal of Honor, he earned a Silver Star, three Bronze Stars, two Purple Hearts, and got a CIB. So that was very impressive. I also met with his daughter. She actually lived in Baton, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Just a wonderful, classy family, very welcoming, very warm. And then in uh, April 2013, uh, they had a big, 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 impressive uh, interment at Arlington National Cemetery. And that was memorable because 
Colonel Faith's father was Brigadier General Don C. Faith. He was a senior, and he's buried in a neat part of, neat, he's built buried on a height on a hill overlooking the rest of the cemetery, and so son got to be buried right next to his father, so wow. that was fascinating. Then the other one I'll mention, there was a Cree War mother. I didn't, get, I don't recall the name of the service member by, by name. However, it was fascinating because I got the brief uh, his mother, like I said, she was going on 100 years old. There were five generations of women in that room, all the way down to a small child. Five oh. generations of women in one room. and mm -hmm. It was in Virginia, and it was a wonderful meeting. So, But like I said, we bring these guys back to life, and we bring an element of closure to these families. And like mm -hmm. I said, when uh, like I like to say, like Paul Harvey used to say, we the rest of the story, we fill in the blanks, and we get to meet these families, and it's tremendously rewarding. So I've only got one story that I want to do, and I, and I uh, um, it's probably the one that, that hit me the hardest. It's when I just started this job, uh, probably 2010-11, and I went and briefed a uh, family in uh, Utah, um, just north of Salt Lake City. The uh, daughter of the service member is who I briefed, and uh, she never knew the service member. She was, uh, she was born after he had uh, become a POW <coughs> in uh, Korea. He died in uh, Camp 5, POW Camp, um, in uh, 1951. When I got done briefing, I had a large family there, um, and uh, it was, you know, the family was uh, extremely happy. When I got done, the daughter pulled me aside, and she said, uh, you know, my mom's downstairs. Uh, she's in hospice, and uh, she didn't, you know, she, she wasn't able to sit through the briefing. Um, but she said she was lucid enough to know that he's coming home. So it's one of those that, uh, you know, you kind of hit you. Um, and, uh, you know, they buried the two of them together, huh. him and his wife. Um, so, yeah, it's, those are the kind of ones that hit you. Yeah, I'll add one more, too. I briefed a case in the South, and it was a uh, daughter of a uh, Vietnam War service member. And uh, she... We went to the briefing, we took a, 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 a quick break, went into the kitchen, and her, her husband came up to me. He shook my hand, looked me in the eye, and said, thank you, thank you, thank you, because up until that very moment when I conducted the briefing, she actually believed at any given moment he might walk through the door and, and come back home. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, she believed, she finally believed that he's, he's, he's deceased and we have his remains. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty special. Well, that's fantastic. Um, now you're choking up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Take a pause. <laughs> I uh, while you're do, while you're pausing, I've it's fascinating because I will sit next to somebody in, on an airplane or at the bar or something and say, well, what do you do? Well, you know, educator, IT, tech, IT or computer work or what have you. So if I say that well, I'm a mortuary officer, that does not mean sense to most people outside the sure. military. So what I do is tell them the mission, and like Greg said, I always tell them there's 81,000 still unaccounted for us, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, active effort to find remains, recover them, identify and bring them home for burial. So when I tell them that, jaws just drop and people just get, a lot of Americans don't realize this program exists and what we do, and I've actually had two ladies, I've just out two strangers saying, this is what we do for a living, this is what I do, and help them bring these guys home. 
people, Americans, just breaking out in tears thinking that's just the most wonderful thing. And so uh, I'd meet the most wonderful people going coast to coast in this job. Yeah, I think I, I don't know if I'd get through what you guys get through. So, uh, you know, my, my congratulations to you that you have found such meaningful work. Um, this, is, this is very special. Okay, I'm going to close. Well, gentlemen, thank you both for your time today on our panel as we remember the 50th anniversary of the close of the Vietnam conflict um, and we discuss uh, our efforts to continue to recover our, our soldiers killed in action. Um, and thank you for what you do and thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Your Personnel File is a monthly podcast brought to you by the Army Human Resources Command Public Affairs Office located at Fort Knox. Our technical support was provided by the HRC Audiovisual Team. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Your Personnel File.